This morning we begin a new series, a multi-week series on women's head coverings. Yes, head coverings. Perhaps one of the most confusing and most joked about issues in all of the New Testament. But as I was explaining and encouraging one of our visitors this morning, we preach the Bible verse by verse. We're not going to skip a verse or a passage just because it's confusing or seems silly or seems outdated. But as we go through this series, I believe you will be glad, as I am, that we did not skip this portion of Scripture. Because as we saw in our last series, that centered, frankly, largely around temple meat. The issue is bigger than the specifics. In other words, the issue is bigger than head coverings. For the meat, it was a powerful lesson on Christian liberty and glorifying God and all that we do. In fact, as we saw, 1 Corinthians 10.31 is part of that teaching regarding temple meat. Now, though the Corinthians' specific question to Paul is about head coverings, and we believe that head coverings was something localized, not just in that time period, but localized to Corinth, the bigger issue, as we will see over the next few weeks, involves lofty issues such as honor, glory, society, and authority. And as we unpack this particular issue that is localized to the culture of ancient Corinth, we will learn valuable lessons, not only regarding the role of women, but also the role of the church as a whole. Before we get into the particulars, Paul begins with the general, and so shall we. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and this morning we'll look at verses 2 through 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 2 and 3. He writes, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman. And God is the head of Christ. This morning, three foundational principles of biblical headship. They are foundational. This is how he begins. They will undergird everything that we will see, not just about head coverings, but what head coverings represent and why the issue was so important that the Corinthians asked Paul about it and Paul took the time to respond. Three foundational principles of biblical headship. The first foundation is the praise of adherence. The praise of adherence. In verse 2, he says, Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. This is very encouraging. Despite all the issues that Paul has addressed in this particular church, they are not total degenerates. They are still adhering to the doctrine that Paul has taught them. They are still respecting his apostleship and submitting to it. In fact, this very letter is him answering their questions because they want clarification from the apostle on what to do regarding certain areas. Sure, they may have been proud, hoping that Paul would knock down one group to advance another group, but they submitted to him nonetheless. And if you recall, again, much of this letter is a result of their trusting Paul to answer their questions. Back in chapter 7 and verse 1, he makes specific mention of, quote, the things which they wrote to him 
about? That is questions that had been sent to Paul for him to answer in regard to biblical doctrine and Christian living. In other words, despite all their weaknesses, despite all their sins, they want to know what is best and most honoring to God. And this should be our desire too when we listen to or read the Word. And here we see that Paul praises the Corinthians for a couple of things. Namely, remembering Paul in everything and holding firmly to the traditions that he delivered to them. First, remembering Paul in everything. This is not a stroking of Paul's ego to help him with his low self-esteem, nor is this a sinfully proud moment in Paul's life where he praises them for thinking about him. This is about the gospel. This is about living out the gospel. They correctly respect and submit to Paul's apostolic authority, his God-given authority as a teacher and proclaimer of God's word, one of the men God uses to establish the church. And we can easily understand this as we respect those that teach us the word of God, but this is, of course, a bit different. What Paul was teaching them was, unbeknownst to them, and probably even to Paul, was that much of his teaching was the Word of God. It was canonized as Scripture. There was no New Testament yet. Old Testament, of course. There was no New Testament yet. So how much more honorable to trust and listen to Paul when they didn't have the New Testament Scriptures to compare his words to? Remember, By all accounts, this is by no means a mature group of Christians. Not only is it the early church without the benefit of centuries of church growth holding them up, they are, as far as the universal church is concerned, the infants. They are the first. They are the beginning. We can be gracious to them as we read of their failures. They, in many ways, did not know any better. They couldn't get online or go to the library and look up, oh, what does this commentator say about this? They couldn't even pick up a Bible and say, what does the Bible say about this? And yet, they trusted Paul. They remembered him in everything. They are, as we know, practicing some pretty gross sin. Nevertheless, they respect, they trust, they remember Paul in everything. It's because of this foundational trust in Paul, as well as his apostolic authority, that leads to the next phrase, and hold firmly to the traditions, just as I delivered them to you. Traditions is a word that we're familiar with. Of course, this goes beyond just, this is our tradition, Christmas morning, we open gifts, or something like that. It's not as accurately translated teachings in the NIV. That's what it says in the NIV. It's not accurate to say just teachings. Traditions simply means that which is passed on. It's an old word and has the picture of something handed from one person to another. You get this. It's a tradition. In this case, it is something that is taught. It is a teaching. And in the New Testament, this word is used both negatively and positively. Negatively, it refers to man-made ideas or practices, specifically ones that counter the doctrines of the Christian faith 
and for the Israelites at least, led them astray, caused many problems, legalism, things like that. Positively, this word is used in the New Testament to, re- to refer to, of course, God-centered teaching. This can be theology, but it can also be issues of lifestyle and morality. Although, of course, as we as Christians know, theology and issues of lifestyle and morality are interwoven. A couple examples of the negative use would be in Mark 7. When the scribes and Pharisees come and they confront Jesus, they ask why his disciples do not wash their hands before they eat, thus breaking the tradition of the elders. That's important. Now keep in mind, this isn't just go to the sink with running water and wash their hands. This was a tradition that had been created among the Jews that involved a lot, a lot more than even the Old Testament commanded. And so he says, look at your disciples. Remember, they're always trying to find faults with Jesus and his disciples. They're, not, they're breaking the tradition of the elders. We all do this. This is what the rabbis have taught us generation after generation. But then later in the same scene, Jesus responds with the same Greek word. Remember, we're giving example of a negative usage here. And asks why they set aside the commandment of God in order to follow those traditions. Same word we have in 1 Corinthians. And so you have a clear example of the contrast between the commands of God and man-made traditions. An example of the positive sense of the word is in 2 Thessalonians 2. I'd like you to turn there. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 15. And again, this is the exact same Greek word we saw in Mark, and it's the exact same Greek word that we see in 1 Corinthians 11, 2. 2 Thessalonians 2.15. So then, brethren... Stand firm and hold to the traditions which you were taught, whether by word of mouth or by letter from us. Now, we understand that this being Scripture, that he is talking about the traditions which would be the commands of God, not the traditions passed down by rabbis or someone else. Turn to chapter 3 and verse 6. Now, we command you, brethren... In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. Now remember the principle, context is king. We understand when tradition is something negative, when it's man-made, it is in fact sinful and misleading by the context. And here again in first Thess- or Second Thessalonians rather, We've seen in the context, it is something good, it is something biblical, it is something from God. This is a principle that we need to adhere to all the time. There's much that we do that we call sin or not sin, and it's not from Scripture, it is the American church culture. It is tradition. You see, uh, even more so in many religions, where traditions are held to the same level as Scripture. Catholicism would probably be one of the biggest examples of this. This is very dangerous because it's not from the Bible. It's not from God. It's from men who created these traditions. But again, when we look at that word in the context of Scripture, the immediate context is king. Let's go back to 1 Corinthians. In this context, 
Traditions can refer to any godly instruction that Paul communicated to them when he was in Corinth. Again, this can be doctrine and practice, both of which we see in Scripture. Another way to put this is that the traditions he refers to here are apostolic traditions and not ecclesiastical. Let me explain what that means. Apostolic. He has his apostolic authority from God. And so what he says is from God. They are from God, though they come out of the mouth of a man. They do not come from the church. Clear examples would be those I just referred to regarding the traditions from Jewish elders versus from God and other religions that we see today. We need to verify these things from the Bible. There is nothing wrong with a tradition that you have in your home. There's nothing wrong with a pattern or tradition you practice in church. For example, what we do here at this church is we take communion once a month rather than twice a year or rather than weekly. We do it the first Sunday of the month. We could call that a tradition. What we're talking about when it is bad is when tradition is held to the level of Scripture where people can be rebuked and called sinners and even put out of the church because they don't hold to that which is man-made. That is wrong. We can't do that. Thankfully, unlike the Corinthians, we have the Scriptures and we can measure against the Scriptures and the very Word of God. And this point not only gives us confidence in Paul's authority and joy in the Corinthians' obedience, but also serves as a reminder of what we are to focus on. Paul is praising them for sticking to the Word of God. Can the same be said of us? Can we be praised for our adherence to the word and the teaching of it? In whatever form that may take. Sermons on Sunday morning, books you read, blogs you read, articles you read, whatever it may be. Is this what you are known for? Because what we are praised for generally is what we're known for, right? It may vary context to context. At work, if you're the one guy who fixed the project at the last moment before the CEO CEO flew in to see what you guys had, that's what you're known for. That's what you were praised for. He's the guy. Remember that guy? He saved us. He saved us. In your life, is obedience to the word, adherence to the word, what you are praised for? Is that what you're known for? Is that what you seek to be known for. Notice that they didn't just hold on to it. They held firmly to it, as should we. So first, what do you want to be known for? The best this, the best that, or do you want to just be faithful? Do you want to just be faithful? To be known to be faithful. No, I want, to, I want to be the best driver. I want to be the best worker. I want to be... That's great if it's because you want to be faithful to the Lord and that bleeds into your work and your Uber driving and your music playing and your preaching and whatever it may be. But I find it very helpful that they held firmly to these truths. When I proposed to my wife, at that time my girlfriend, I was living overseas. I flew to the United States to surprise her and to pop the question. 
And I was going to stay for a couple weeks. And so, as you can imagine, like you do, when you're flying across an ocean to stay somewhere else for a couple weeks, I had quite a bit of stuff with me. I had luggage, I had clothing, I had toiletries, I had my laptop, I had my passport, all the usual stuff for this proposal, with the addition of one unique, uniquely small, and uniquely expensive item, the engagement ring. And as much as I didn't want to lose my luggage, if that's ever happened to you, you know how terrible that is. I especially didn't want to lose like my passport or my laptop. But I definitely did not want to lose that ring. Which is why I kept it in the box and wrapped it in not one, not two, but three t-shirts before I checked it into my luggage. No, of course not. I didn't check it in. I kept it with me. It was in my pocket, and I was even, I mean, it's a long flight, right? From where I was living, there's no direct flight, so by the time you get to the United States, you've been traveling uh, about 24 hours, and so there's a lot of layovers, there's a lot of moving, there's a lot of layovers and passport control in countries and where lines are not a thing, and so people are shoving. And then you have the transatlantic flight, which is a long one. One of my secrets to getting over jet lag is to not sleep on the plane. So when you do get there, you muscle through it till nighttime. You're so tired, you sleep. But inevitably, I do take a little nap. But in that seat, I had it in my pocket. And I was scared that it would fall out of my pocket. That's happened to you, right? They tell you, the flight attendants, please check your seat pockets and your seats in case anything fell out. And so not only did I shove that ring as far as I could in my pocket, I held on to it that whole time. Just (laughs) hand in my pocket, just holding on to that ring. Trusting that it was still in there because I dare not check it in case someone see it. And then I'm all scared someone will try to take it. I held on to it. And I held on to it tightly. It was the most valuable thing in my possession that day. To the point that though I was uncomfortable, though I was scared, though it hurt me to carry the rest of my luggage with the one free arm, I did not want to let go. And that's what Paul is saying how the Corinthians held on to his teaching. And that's how we should hold on to the teaching of the Word of God. You hold on to it in a way that shows that it is indeed the most valuable thing in your possession. Don't let go. Of course, holding on firmly doesn't just mean memorize it. It doesn't mean hold your physical Bible firmly. It means hold on to it firmly in the practice of your life. To gauge every decision, every word, every thought through the Word of God. Hold on to it firmly. We need to do this with the Word of God. We cannot just hold it tight to our chest for ourselves like that engagement ring we need to share it with others as well. And that leads us to our second foundational principle of biblical headship, the passing of doctrine. 
the passing of doctrine. This is also in verse 2 in the end. Hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. Just as we received, accept, and adhere, so we should pass on doctrine to others. Paul passed them on. Then those people passed them on. And from generation to generation it went. How do we know that the Corinthians and the early church passed it on? Because we exist right now. They pass it on, then they pass it on for some 2,000 years, and we're going to keep passing it on, then our children will pass it on, then our grandchildren will pass it on, all the way up to who knows when the Lord returns. Even with the advent of the printing press, then modern technology, the existence of the Bible and sermons just sits there if you don't do something to pass them on. Even if it's like, hey, there's this great website, you should check it out. Pass it on. And the reason I want to emphasize that before getting into the whole topic of biblical headship is to answer the question, why is a controversial topic controversial? Why is a controversial topic controversial? And why does that change from culture to culture and generation to generation? 75 years ago, probably much less than that, being liberal there, homosexuality or the disregard of homosexuality was not a controversial topic. A hundred years ago, being pro-life was not a controversial view. What makes a controversial topic controversial? Well, at the very basic level, because someone disagrees but disagrees to the point that their view becomes commonplace. See, if there's only two or three people who say, no, 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 abortion is good, it's not controversial. But when it advances to a point where it's a major issue in society, where it advances to a point that it must be brought up in order to win a political race, or doesn't even need to be brought up because they just know where your stance is. It's so ingrained in political parties. It becomes a controversial topic. People disagree to the point that their view becomes commonplace. And why would someone have another opinion that carries so much weight? How do these come about? Those timelines that I just gave you that most of you nodded to are not very long, when compared to the history of man, or even the existence of, say, the United States of America, if you, wanna don't, if you don't want to go too far back. More often than not, something becomes weighty and controversial simply because someone with the other viewpoint got to that person before someone else did and convinced them that that was the way. Hmm. That makes sense. So I will pass it on and I will pass it on and I will pass it on. Many of you see this. You have people who generally have a lot harder time with Issues such as the ones I just mentioned and many others you're probably thinking of that pop into your head 
They have a harder time when they get saved after four years of education at a liberal university or college than if they were saved before because someone else got to them first, you see. It's a simple principle. You get it. If you've had children or raised children, you really get this. It's simply what you've taught them. They start doing things, believing things before they even understand why because you got to them first before someone else came in. Now, I understand that there are many other factors. I'm very oversimplifying this. People's views change. Cultures change. When it comes to spiritual issues and biblical truth, of course, there's major factors such as the depravity of man and the leading of the Holy Spirit. But the reality is that other views and beliefs have crept in because the foundational truths of God's Word have been neglected. They have, been, they have left stagnant, they are suppressed, and they have not been faithfully passed on. Think about it. If someone randomly came up to you without you having any former knowledge, you don't know anything about this, we all do, but just suppose you don't, and says the Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776. You'd be like, the who what now? Did you just make up that number? That's just a year that you liked? How do you know? But in reality... If someone were to tell you that the Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776, you would already know that. You're like, oh yeah, I forgot about that, but yeah, I learned that in school. So much so that probably no one would come up to you and say the Declaration of Independence was signed in 1776 because we all know that. It's an assumption that we all know that. Why? Because you learned it in school or you learned it in your studies for your citizenship or green card exam, and we learned it from generation to generation because someone who was actually there recorded the event and then delivered it, using Paul's words, from generation to generation, hand to hand, mind to mind. And so there is no way that that truth could be infiltrated. Later on, someone said, no, 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 it was 1777. Because it was a cold, hard fact that was passed on from hand to hand. This is why it's so important that the truth is passed on. Like the bagging and tagging of crucial evidence in the police station that is then signed by the person who bagged it. Another view can only come in and contaminate the truth when there is a break in the chain of custody. And as Christians, we need to prioritize, we need to hold fast and deliver the truth. You're talking about evangelism? In part, yes. But this applies to everything. Parents, stop setting aside the truth to make way for instilling academic success in your children. Employees, stop setting aside the truth to make way for perceived respect from your peers. Spouses, stop setting aside the truth to make way for a peaceful home. No more arguing. We set aside the truth so we're comfortable. We set aside the truth so we can pursue things of the world that we want make us feel good. And so you see, this is not just a 
pastor much, must preach issue. This is an issue of our daily lives. It's not just one entity of this local church to the next local church. It is you. When you talk to your kids, when you talk to your spouse, when you talk to your neighbors, when you talk to your bus driver, whatever it may be. Deliver the truth as Paul did. We must deliver the truth. And when we do not, other views, wrong views creep in and we too quickly forget the biblical historical narrative which includes, and this is very important in regard to biblical headship, which includes the way the creator of the universe intended things to be. I want you to remember this point over the next few weeks. Because the main lesson that Paul is teaching us is the subordination and equality of women to men. The subordination of women to men. And this will rub some of you the wrong way. But before you jump to conclusions, listen. Before you defend a view or movement that's only a few decades or even a few hundred years old, listen to what has been the plan of God, not for thousands of years, but since eternity past. It is not a movement. It is the way God created And, and we see this, right? We forget the way God created. And this is why you can redefine, redefine gender. You can redefine life. You can redefine marriage. You can redefine love, as our culture has done for all of these things. Because society doesn't care what God intended. Doesn't matter if that's how it originally was. Intended to be for all time. We can change things because of how we feel and then fight for these new perceived rights. We need to be careful. In my relatively short time as a pastor, it'll be 20 years in a few months, I've learned that there are some issues that no matter what I say, no matter what I say, people jump to conclusions. Sometimes I'm not even talking about that particular issue. I make mention of it, but as a springboard for something else, and they assume they know what I'm saying or what I'm going to say, and even react to what they assume before they even listen to what I have to say. For example, in our last Q&A, we were in the middle of a study where one of the major principles was, I become all things to all men. Remember this? And the principle was that you do all things, as long as it's not sin, or causes a weaker brother to stumble, for the sake of the gospel. So, if Paul wanted to share the gospel with his blood brethren, the Jews, and they said, well, you ain't eating pork here, Paul says, then I'm not eating pork today. That's fine. Because what's more important is not make, making a point about, hey, in, in Christ we can eat whatever we want. What's more important is their salvation, right? All things. And in our last Q&A, I said that vaccines fall into the category of all things. 
specifically all things we could do to win an audience for the gospel. I went on to say that I'm not even sure there would be a place where getting the COVID vaccine or not getting the COVID vaccine would open such doors, but if it clearly did, then it's worth getting because of what we have been studying. And one person who is anti-COVID vaccine reacted to the words, you should get the vaccine, and that's all he heard. He didn't hear me say, probably won't be an instance where you would need to do that. He didn't hear me say, well, we need to be all things to all men, like Paul said. He was so grounded, I believe in part because of his political views, in don't get the COVID vaccine that that's all he heard. And frankly, I believe was one of the reasons he never came back. He didn't hear the context. He didn't hear the main point that has nothing to do with the vaccine per se. Biblical submission and the subordination of women falls into this category where some women and some men, without hearing the word of God, without hearing the context, just hear those words and they want to throw it all out and jump to conclusions. I know what you're going to say. No, you don't. Especially if you think you know what I'm going to say. Feelings, preconceived notions, they keep us from listening. We need to let the word speak for itself rather than jumping to conclusions. And more importantly, this is very important today, let the word speak for itself rather than letting society define what the Bible teaches. See, the Bible says women are to submit and are equal. The Bible says women are to submit and that they are equal. Society says that since the Bible teaches that women are to submit, then it is teaching that women are not equal to men. And a lot of Christians believe that. They say, well, it just makes sense. It makes sense. If I have to submit, then I'm not equal to my husband. That makes sense. It only makes sense to you because society has led you to believe that. And when you believe that, you're letting secular society define what the Bible says. In other words, just because society's logic tells us that since the Bible says, A, women can't do certain things, then the Bible also says, B, women are not equal. Just because society says that does not mean it's true. If we are to listen to society's logic, then Jesus Christ does not exist because... You cannot be fully God and fully man. That's society's logic. Or vice versa. Either way, we'd be doomed. On the one hand, he died but didn't save anyone because he was just a man. On the other hand, he couldn't have died because he wasn't human. We're damned either way. Don't listen to society's logic. And with that prefacing warning, let's move on to the main issue that we'll cover over these next few weeks, our third foundational principle of biblical headship, the privilege of submission. The privilege of submission. Look at verse 3. 
But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of a woman, and God is the head of Christ. And again, if you are bothered then that by this issue, all you heard and all you read was a part about women and men. And yet here it says Christ submits. All men submit. There's one point here. It's manifested in three different examples. One theme, three relationships. The word head speaks of authority. Obviously, it comes from physical anatomy. Your physical head, where your brain is, is what controls your body. There's a lot of body parts that you could lose, a lot of body parts that people have lost, and they still function. Without your head, though, there's nothing to control the rest of the body. And so we understand the idea of authority there. In a figurative and spiritual sense, this speaks, again, of authority, the general principle that Paul is setting up here to introduce the place of woman is that everyone, even Christ, has an authoritative head. But first, Paul says Christ is the head of every man. We know from passages such as Ephesians 5 and Colossians 1 that Christ is the head of the church, but Christ is also the head of unbelievers. He is their authority. They may not submit to that authority in their living and life, but he is their authority nonetheless because Philippians chapter 2, verses 10 and 11 tells us that one day all men, Christian or not, will bow the knee to the name of Jesus and confess him to be Lord. Why? Well, for believers, because we've been under his authority and for many years we submitted to that authority and we bow the knee and worship him. For unbelievers, at that moment they will recognize that they have violated, rebelled against that authority their entire lives. And at that moment when their consciences are fully informed, they will realize who they are, what they have done, and who he is. And they will bow the knee, not in pleasure like we will, but in pain. It's like people declaring, he's not my president. Well, we get what they're saying, that they don't agree with him, they, don't, uh, they didn't vote for him. But technically and legally, if you're a citizen or a resident of the U.S., he is, in fact, your president. You may say he's not my God, but technically and spiritually, if you are human, he is in fact your God, your creator, your authority. Again, just like a criminal may not listen to the police or a child may not obey his parents, those people are still the authority. Christ is the head of every man and woman. Next, he says, the man is the head of a woman. This is a general principle involving all men and all women and not just husbands and wives. Of course, a very clear and specific outworking of this is in marriage, but this truth is not limited to that. This does not mean all women are to submit to all men. The later context regarding public ministry in the church and the appeal to creation will clarify this especially verses 8 and 9, which where he explains the basic order of creation. And this is really what our series is about, so we'll jump to the next one. Third, Paul says that God the Father is the head of Christ. Yes, even within the Godhead, the Holy Trinity, there is authority and submission. But I don't think any of us would dare say they are not equal. 
Jesus himself was very clear that he submitted to the Father's will, even to the point of incarnation and death. John 4.34, Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. John 5.30, I can do nothing on my own initiative. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John 6.38, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. We know very clearly from Scripture that they are equal, but there is there are levels of submission and authority there. It's not mentioned in our verse for the morning, but we also know from other passages that the Holy Spirit in turn submits to the Father and the Son, but is equal with the Father and the Son. Now, no matter how hard you may find it to submit to another or even to accept this principle, because it is tough at times, the reality is you will never have to do what Christ did because of the Father's authority. Never, ever. Not even close. Even in some weird Barbaric acts contrary to all social and cultural norms. Someone crucifies you on a cross for your faith, still doesn't even come close. Because you would basically be getting what you deserve. You're not an eternal God who incarnated into human being to suffer and die. And yet he did it with joy and unbridled willingness because of the authority of the Father. And looking at all of these together, we see that subordination and authority are all within the plan of God. Even looking at society, you see how it would fall apart if this was not the case. I don't remember the name, but there was, in fact, a tech company that decided to pay all their employees equally and give them all an equal say without a CEO, without a board of directors, it lost a lot of money and closed shop very quickly. It doesn't work. As much as you may be frustrated by your boss, you are thankful there is a boss. There's a board of directors, people who make decisions from the top down. And though money and knowing who you know may get into get you into places that others can't, the reality is his blood is blood, his tears are tears, her hair is hair. You are equal as far as humanity is concerned. The theme of the whole passage is woman's submission to man, and when you look at the larger principle, you see that this actually gives women dignity rather than dishonor, as our culture claims. Just look. If Christ did not submit to authority, there would be no salvation. That brings great honor and glory to Jesus Christ because of his submission. If man does not submit to authority, there would be no church. There would be none saved. And yet we receive honor and glory because of our submission to his will. And if women do not submit to men, then family and subsequently society is destroyed. Wives and moms have a role in upholding the family and society. You think that's dishonorable? 
You think that's shameful? I think it's shameful that society insults you in saying that it's shameful. There is honor and dignity in fulfilling all of our roles. And if all men and even Jesus Christ is under an authority, how is it embarrassing? How is it undignified or strange that a woman is too? And with the equality issue, it's simply and wonderfully the plan of God. That's how he designed it. You say, that's not fair. I know you're saying it's equality, but it's inequality. To say that God's plan and design and his sovereignty is not fair and it is inequality, it's like my son saying it's not fair because he can't eat what his siblings eat because of his disease. True story for those of you who are visiting. In God's design and sovereignty, my son is who he is. He is made in God's image. His physical body is diseased. Are you going to tell me that because of his illness, that my son is not equal to your son? Because of God's plan for his disease, Before time began, that my son is not equal to your son or my other sons? You wouldn't say that. You don't believe that. As he gets older, my son has a choice. He can complain his whole life and say it's not fair. I mean, believe me, I think about that. I want him to have a university dorm experience like I did, but what's he going to eat? They're cooking for 10,000 people at one time. They're going to make a special dish for him? I think about that, but he gets older. I can say, he can say, it's not fair. He can grow up getting mad at other Christians for suggesting that he should trust God, that that's God's plan. How dare you? He could do all of those things, none of which, by the way, will change the truth of Scripture or God's sovereignty. It will not change who he is. It will not change how God has made him. It won't change any of that. Or he can rejoice in God's sovereign plan and purposes and worship through whatever God has put in his life and how he has made him. Right now, he's not a believer. He's a young kid, grade school. And so he can't fully grasp the idea of biblical submission without the Holy Spirit and, frankly, just his level of logic at this point. He cannot grasp the idea of God's sovereignty. He can't have full confidence in it right now. And so in many ways, he looks at his brothers eating cake or he watches us eating whatever or has to skip things because he has a doctor's appointment. And sometimes he may feel like it's not fair. And that's the reality of any issue. But to our point, with biblical submission, if you have a problem with it, If you feel that it's unfair, it's because you do not have a full confidence in the sovereignty of God. You don't have a high enough view of God to say 
that this is not the short end of the stick. This is his plan, and it is wonderful because he is good. We'd rather complain, reinterpret scripture, hold grudges against people in our small groups for speaking truth, whatever it is. And as we unpack this, we'll see a broader point that Paul is making. The connection in each relationship in verse 3 is not just one way. It's not a one-way arrow. It's not just A is the head of B and that's that. What he will go on to say is that because A is the head of B, how B responds to that authority can bring glory or shame to A. How we respond to our role of submission to Christ as our head will either bring him shame or glory. How a woman responds to a man as her head will either bring shame or glory to him and subsequently to the Lord. See, in this passage... Paul's not trying to write a theology of gender. He's writing a theology of worship. He's trying to correct the Corinthians' practice that hinders the reputation and growth of the church. And with such a huge issue of worship and authority and God's glory, what is the particular practice or picture that Paul uses to make this point? Head coverings. Yes, head coverings. How in the world does that fit? Come back next week and find out. Now I praise you because you remember me in everything and hold firmly to the traditions just as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Let's pray. Father, what a privilege to know your plan. What a privilege to even, in a negative way, to see the outworking of your plan in that society rejects it. And yet you have saved us to know it, to practice it, And as we go through this passage, I pray that you would help us to be teachable, especially those of us who know you, but that this particular issue irks us, guard us from jumping to conclusions and assumptions. And even if our assumptions prove to be true from your word, may we accept it and rejoice for you are good and you are holy. Use us, Father, in compliance with our God-given authorities for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.